Turn with me this morning to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verses 14 and 15. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verses 14 and 15. And when we think of the spiritual health of a church, we rightly consider the role that a pastor plays in that, right? It is certainly true that the pastor of a church wields great influence over the direction of the church, and that includes its spiritual health. And so that's part of what we looked at in the verses prior to what we will be looking at today, is that the pastor's labor is for the spiritual health of the church. However, we have created within the church a culture where the pastor is the only minister where a single pastor is solely responsible for the spiritual health, the spiritual state of every church member. But brothers and sisters in Christ, this morning, this is not what the Scripture says. And as we come to our passage this morning, I want us to see this, that every member of the church bears responsibility for the spiritual health of every other member of the church. Indeed, we will see that the Christian's call is to build up their fellow believer and do good works. That's what I want us to see this morning, that the Christian's call is to build up their fellow believer and do good works. So let's turn to our passage this morning, and let's see how you are called to minister. Uh, Verses 14 and 15 of 1 Thessalonians 5, and this here is the word of the Lord. The scripture says, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. This is the word of the Lord. So Paul is drawing his letter of love to the Thessalonians to a close, and he's offering them some kind of more general encouragements, right? It's not as though uh, it, it doesn't seem to be, at least, that there's any particular issue at work in the church at Thessalonica that he feels the need to, to address in a pressing manner at this point. So he's just offering kind of some general encouragements. And so every church can take a look at what Paul says here and pull from them uh, and, and pull from them what is obedience for us even today. Paul wants to ensure that the, this church stands firm in their faith. And part of that is offering these general encouragements that aren't so much a disjointed, uh, you know, just random scattershot shotgun uh, approach to instruction, but rather they're all touching upon some issues of relational unity. And we see that even in our passage today. He wants to ensure they live out the truth and they live out the implications of the truth, right? The the gospel has some implication on what they do as they gather together as a church. And so it does for us as well. In verses 12 and 13, he asks the church to remember and esteem those who labor in the gospel over them. He calls for peace within the church. At the end of verse 13, he says, be at peace among yourselves. And when we looked at that verse, we... We said that this is a pivot verse, as in he's saying that as much as that is true between members and their leaders, that there should be peace there. 
He's also saying it is true for members and their members, right? The members of a church and the members of the church should be at peace. We should all be at peace with one another. And so today we turn to this consideration of your role as church member to build up the body. So let's look at that first. We're talking about build up, build up in verse 14. And so the missionaries call the church to action once more, right? He says, and we urge you, we ask you, we exhort you, we are imploring you, do this. He wants them to grow in the word and he understands that in order for them to grow, it is not the responsibility of the elders alone, but it's the responsibility of every church member that the church be built up. And as we look to this verse, we might get the inclination that he is actually addressing this to the elders. Right? Just before this, he talks about those who uh, labor in the gospel. But notice what he says. He says, and we urge you, brothers or brothers and sisters. And when we have seen this language elsewhere in this letter, it seems he is always referring to the church body itself, not just the church leaders. And so there's no indication in our passage this morning to indicate that this is directed to church leaders alone. And the reason I front that issue is because what we see as we go through sounds a whole lot like what a pastor should do, what an elder should do. But he's talking about the brothers and sisters in Christ in Thessalonica. He's talking about the church body at large. So what is what is it that he urges? What is it that he exhorts them to do? Admonish, encourage, help, and be patient. So let's take a look at these in turn. The first thing he says is admonish the idol. And we've examined that word admonish before, and it just means this kind of warning rebuke. It's to offer a warning instruction or a sharp word of correction. Right? This is, this is much more than an, an encouragement. We kind of come alongside someone and give them a positive boost. An admonishment is more of kind of a negative boost, which sounds oxymoronic. If that's even a word there, it sounds like an oxymoron, right? It sounds like jumbo shrimp. But what we're doing is we're giving, we're giving a sharp correction where we want to correct. Who are we trying to correct? Well, the ESV translates the Greek there as idle. And depending on your translation, you may have something like disobedient or unruly or uh, kind of disorderly, undisciplined. All these things. So it seems what Paul is saying, the sense of the word seems to be that he is saying admonish, offer a sharp rebuke to those who are out of step. Offer correction to those who are out, who are out of bounds of where they should be. So this is to say the, these are people who are not engaging in the things that they ought to be, but they're rather layabouts. They take and they do not give in the church body. So this is in contrast to how the missionaries themselves operated when they were among the Thessalonians. You could look at this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6-12. through 12. Paul deals with this issue more fully there. 2 Thessalonians 3, starting in verse 6. He says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness, 
And that's the same Greek word. And not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we work night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So it does seem at some point in Thessalonica they had an issue with idleness, with unruly members, undisciplined and disorderly members. And what he tells them, right, he says, first look at the example that we gave you. We weren't idle. We had a right as as pastor, as elder, as apostle, as missionary. We had a right that we could have taken from you. But rather what we did instead was we worked night and day in order to support ourselves so we wouldn't be a burden to you. And then we hear of these in in the church fellowship who aren't working at all but rather they're busy about other people's business. They're intruding in other people's business. They're busy bodies. They're not working. And as we told you, if they're not willing to work, don't let them eat. Because the implication seems to be, right, uh, typically, especially in the time of the early church, there would be benevolence in the church. And um, so, for instance, orphans and widows would eat out of the goodness, out of uh, the generosity of other church members who would pool their money together and then food would be distributed from there on, right? They'd go out, purchase the food, or maybe make the food themselves and offer it as part of the deal. And so some people who could work weren't working and were taking from the church. So you can kind of think of it. They're taking food out of the mouth of an orphan or a widow who doesn't have means to support themselves. You can understand perhaps why Paul was so strongly worded towards them. And so what Paul tells us uh, in 2 Thessalonians is command them to do their work. Command and encourage them in the Lord to do their work and to earn their own living. He says to shame them at the very beginning. He says, keep away from such a brother. Keep away from such a person who is walking in idleness. So he says to the Thessalonians in our passage, though, right? he says, admonish them, warn them, rebuke them, reprove them, correct them. Don't let them get away with it. But what does this mean for us today? Your responsibility within the church, right? Because this isn't written to pastors. He's not saying pastors admonish the idol. Pastors do admonish. Go back up what he says uh, in verse 12, right? Those who are admonish you. But he's talking to the church here. And to the church he says, admonish the idol. You are to offer a sharp reproof that those who have strayed may return. That those who are out of order might be put into order. And then, of course, there's the big question. How do we do this? How should we do this? How do we prevent ourselves from becoming the morality police? 
where we're going around and saying, oh, are, are you being idle? Are you, are you, are you out of order? Ready for that. Get, get, get on that. Right? How do you stop from being a busybody when you're starting to intrude into the, the lives of others unnecessarily? It takes what Paul says at the end of verse 14 here. Be patient with them all. So the first thing I would suggest to you, how do you do this? You be patient. Uh, we've all been at one end of impatience and a sharp rebuke offered to us. Right? We may remember a time when we were younger and we did something out of order and our parents maybe struck us, right? maybe hit us, maybe said something very harsh towards us, uh, something that was out of line, right? Uh, it didn't, it didn't meet the needs of the situation. They were overbearing in their response. And perhaps we can recall a time when we've done that to our own children or to our friends where we've gone above, right? We did not meet the situation with the level it needed to be met. We went overboard. And here's the reality. Impatience is easy, right? It's easy to be impatient because uh, it, it is our natural state. We don't need to be told to be impatient, right? That, that's how we are naturally. And here's the reality of that. Impatience, when we're talking about a situation within the church, when we're talking about relationship with one another, impatience fails to take into consideration the context of an action. So let me explain what I mean by that. Sometimes we are impatient because we don't understand how we ourselves are feeling at the moment. We don't understand the stresses that are pressing upon us, right? So it may seem like a little thing uh, that someone else did, and we blow it up in our mind because we have all this other weight and stress that is pressing upon us. And so we have a, uh, we're letting that little thing drive us, uh, drive the stress out of us when the big thing is really the problem, right? The big thing in us. The other thing is we don't understand that in the other person. Impatience doesn't take into context the other person. What's been going on in their life uh, up to that day? Uh, you may have heard this before. Uh, when someone is angry with you, if you're out in public and you know someone cuts you off and then angrily cusses at you, you don't know what has been going on in their life that day. They may have just gotten terrible news. They may have just had a, a terrible day where everything was pressing upon them and everything went wrong that day. And you don't know that. You only know that one moment. And so how you respond to that, uh, right, how you respond to that either shows your patience or impatience with that person. But for the idle, for the unruly, uh, another thing we have to consider, how do we do this, right? So we have to consider patience. We have to consider impatience. For the idle, for the unruly, we may be dealing with someone who is immature. We may be dealing with an immature believer. We may be dealing some, with someone who is saved, but may, may need to be taught what is expected of them. Again, consider a child. We can hardly be justly angry with a child that fails to live up to our expectations when we don't communicate our expectations. Or when we ask them to do something that they cannot do. We can get angry at such persons. 
And abusive parents do get angry at such such children, right? But we should be patient with them. We, pa- we are patient with a child because we know the child needs instruction. They need, uh, they need uh, to be instructed about expectations, about how to do something. We should be patient with those whose disobedience springs from ignorance. But at the same time, we don't ignore sin. So how do we deal with this? We don't ignore it, right? That's the bad response to this. A bad response is impatience. A bad response is uh, right not recognizing the need for discipleship, for instruction. And a bad response is ignoring it. Rather, we confront them in love and we confront them with patience. Whereas 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7, often misused in a wedding, but uh, it's appropriate here perhaps. What is love? Um, and I'm sorry for saying it that way because immediately in my mind came the song, so um, we'll move beyond that. First uh, Corinthians 13, 4-7 tells us that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So we take such an idle person, we take an unruly person aside, and in love, We warn them to do the work that God has called them to do. We call them to live up to what God has called them to be. Right? We do it in love. We do it with patience. We do it with endurance. We bear with it. And here's the reality, right? If they are in Christ, we have to love them. And here's the thing, too. If they're not in Christ, we have to love them. And love is confronting and admonishing the sin of unruly disobedience. We take an idle person aside and we call them to it. Um, For instance, here's an example in our own culture. In our culture, there's a certain subset that bemoans another subset of our culture. Uh, So let me say it a little bit less circumspectly, right? Less, Less vague here. How often do we hear someone, and maybe us ourselves, uh, how often have we heard or spoken of the laziness of those who are on welfare? How often have we complained and grumbled about their idleness? Now, the first thing I would say to that is we shouldn't be surprised that lost persons act like lost persons, grumbling and complaining about others, or being lazy and, and idle and unruly. But as in where such a person would be in our midst, as in where such a person calls themselves a brother or sister in Christ, our response should be a loving reproof. We go to what Paul says in Second Thessalonians and we say, you are called to work. We take such a one aside and remind them of what they were saved to do. Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We remind them about who they work for. Because sometimes the reason why we don't want work is because we have unjust employers. We don't like our employer. They, they are bad employers. What do we do in that situation? Colossians 3, 23 through 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Notice what Paul says there, right? You will receive the inheritance as your reward. So he tells us that there is a reward for our work, even when it seems there is injustice in our earthly reward. We don't complain about one another in the church. Rather, we strive to build one another up. And so that's what Paul is exhorting us to do. So he says, build up the church by admonishing the idol. Secondly, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. He says, encourage, or that word there could mean comfort. The faint-hearted, that word, again, discouraged or feeble-minded. And the sense of this exhortation is that there may be those among us who falter in our faith. They may be depressed. They may be in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death and their courage is failing. Is there reason for discouragement in this life? Yes, many. There are many circumstances in life that can get, cause us to sigh in discouragement uh, to the point where we may think of giving up. Right? There are re- reasons outside of us. The, just the state of the world outside of us, the state of our country. Uh, again, think about this. Is what is happening in our world today, is what is happening in our country today, is that filling you full of courage about the future? The pandemic has brought much discouragement, right? And with every new wave you hear about, there's just more reason to be discouraged. Whether that's because of the toll that it's taking on the people who are being ill, who are getting sick, or whether that's the toll that is being taken by uh, overreaching governments or underreaching governments, governments who don't seem to care or governments who seem to want to intrude upon every minute of your life. Right There's reason for discouragement. There's fresh reason to be tired and ready to give up. There's also outside of us the evil one. He loves to bring discouragement. Satan loves to make us waver and falter. He loves to prod and poke us until we give up. He is, after all, prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And there are reasons inside of us, too. How often are you disappointed in yourself? Right? Every time I sin the same sin that I too often sin, I sigh and I think, will I ever be free from this body of death? And if you weren't discouraged before I began, you may be starting to feel a little bit of that right now, right? The call to the church, the call to you is to come alongside your brother or sister in Christ who is downcast and to remind them of the truth of Christ. We are called to come alongside one another in patience and bring such a person comfort. We are called to remind them of God's providential hand in all things, even the thing that is before them and pressing upon them. 
Psalm 42, 11, the psalmist says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Right, the psalmist confesses something of his own soul. He's down, he's depressed, he's saddened, he's in turmoil, and it seems, and that's an important distinction there, it seems as though God has abandoned him. But he reminds himself, hope in God. He said, God is my salvation, and God is my God. And let me speak very seriously here for a moment. Uh, As someone who has suffered with depression, it can be difficult to believe the truth of God when all you hear is the lies in your own mind. It can be very difficult to uh, to bear with those things as the evil one whispers into your mind, God doesn't really love you, nobody else loves you, give up and go home. But understand this, if you are in Christ Jesus, he will never leave you nor forsake you. And beloved, don't look to yourself. Don't look to yourself. Look to Christ Jesus. Don't look to what you are, who you are, what you're doing or what you're not doing. Look to Christ Jesus. Look to the man of sorrows who bore your sin. Look to the one who has suffered much in order to make you a child of God. And if this is something that you are currently struggling struggling with, I would encourage you to come speak with me afterwards. We can set up a time. Uh, we can sit down and talk. We can pray together. Uh, we can do whatever it takes But don't suffer alone, and I mean that. Don't suffer alone. Don't think that God rejects you in your depression. Because, brother and sister in Christ, on the contrary, God wants to show you His divine, eternal love and grace. He sent His Son to that end. And so, church, this is your call. Your call is to come alongside those whose courage is failing. And surely this is part of the reason that God has created the body of Christ, the church. That is why he gathers us, because we need one another. Again, contrary to what our world says, contrary to what this world believes, that we can all be individuals and pull ourselves up and do everything on our own, we need a community of believers in order to get us to the end line to get us over the finish line, to be faithful, to be instructed and mature in Christ. This is your job. And surely this is what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, when he says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are in this together. So let us encourage one another with these words. And perhaps with the words of 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. So build up the church by encouraging the faint-hearted. Thirdly, help the weak. So he says, support those who are weak in the faith. Paul, for instance, instructs the Roman church about those whose consciences are struck by the eating of meat, especially meat sacrificed to an idol. And he says this in Romans 14, 1 and 2. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Don't reject him. Welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. 
So don't say, come on, come on in and, and sit down with me, and then I'm going to set you straight. No, he says, welcome him, not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat everything, anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Or Romans 15.1, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Twice, he tells them to bear with such persons who are weak. And the reality is that within the church, there are a great many, many opinions about the Christian life, and we may hold others, uh, hold uh, some that others disagree upon, and they may hold some that we disagree upon. But the work of the discipler, which is what you are called to be, right? Remember the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. The work of the discipler is not to berate or to belittle such persons. Contrary to our age, right, in which we're called to ignore the needs of others and consider only our own, we are called here to stoop down to such persons who are weak in their faith and support them, help them. We are called to give them support like we give the tomato vine support so that it can produce fruit. Or we could, for instance, think of how a child learns how to walk. Do we just say, move everything away from the child. Don't let them touch anything and hope that they get up on their own. No, right? We give them toys and things that they can hold on to. We hold their hands and help them get an understanding of how it is that they move their feet. And then there does come a point, right, where we let go and help them to see that they can stand on their own. And that they can start making little steps on their own. And when they go and they fall, what do we do? We help them. Right? We don't just say, get up, you loser. Learn how to walk. Right? We support them. We help them. We give them a hand. And so, too, within the church, we come alongside those who are less mature in their faith, who are weak in their faith, and we offer them support. We're to build one another up. How do we accomplish this? We go to God's word. We speak God's word to one another. We talk about the things of God. We pray for one another and with one another. That's really important. Because again, we're not disjointed persons. We're the body of Christ. So when we pray, we don't just pray alone, though we should pray in, in, uh, our, our, by ourselves in the privacy uh, in the old-timey way of saying it, in the prayer closet. But we also pray together. We pray with one another. Within the church, it is not merely the job of the teacher to teach. It is the responsibility in some part, as Paul even says here, right, of the stronger in faith to instruct, to disciple the weaker. So build up the church by supporting the weak. And then fourthly, in verse 14, how do we build up the church? We be patient with them all. We be patient. I briefly discussed this, but it bears repeating because, again, our tendency, the natural uh, inclination of our, our flesh is impatience, not patience. The fruit of the Spirit is patience, but the fruit of the flesh is impatience. Uh, if it came natural to us, we wouldn't need the Spirit. But patience is required because correction takes time. And think about this in your own life. How long does it take for you to learn something? 
How much effort does it take for you to be able to understand those subjects which don't come naturally to you? For some of you, math is a strong suit, and you can do complex math in your head without a calculator, and you come out to the right answer. I can do complex math in my head without a calculator. Uh, it takes a long time, and I probably won't come out to the right answer. Uh, some of us, we have to pull off our shoes, and you know, we at least can go up to 20. Uh, maybe some fancy math if we you know, group them by fives or something. In every case... We are to be patient because we all learn different. Sometimes it takes us repeated reminders before we get something. This exhortation surely holds great weight for the elders. Elders, pastors need to, to hear this. Um, what Paul says, for instance, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 1 and 2, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and dead by his appearing in his kingdom, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And it is true, as we consider uh, us as church members, it is true, uh, as we think about admonishing and encouraging and helping, it is true that the more often we have to address the same problems in another, the more apt we are to become impatient because we will want to be done with them or at least be angry towards them for not getting it. But again, we have to consider our own self. If we examine our own weaknesses, we will often find that we need to be instructed, encouraged, admonished in the same way multiple times, and even then we may fail to do what ought to be done. We may find, as Paul says in Romans 7, right? I don't do the things I want to do, and the very thing I hate to do, I do. But love is patient, and love bears all things, and love endures all things. So, Christian... How are you building up the church? Who do you need to come alongside and encourage? Who needs your help and support? How are you going to build the church up? Again, it's a question often rightly addressed towards a pastor. How are you going to build the church? But what Paul says here is that the work of the ministry isn't for the pastor alone. Pastor leads in it but it's the responsibility of every member. How are you going to build up the church? And as you build up the church, Paul con con uh, continues here and he commends us to do good always. So let's look at do good. Uh, verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. And so if what Paul has already exhorted us to wasn't difficult enough, what Paul says now, we have the command here now to do good and to refrain from vengeance. This is not without precedent. And I'm going to give you a bunch of verses here just to show you that Paul's not pulling this out of the air and one and done. And so we can ignore it. This is something we see throughout the scripture. For instance, we could go to Matthew 5. 44 to 48, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? 
And if you greet only your brothers, and what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. So to love our enemies means we don't repay them with evil, but we show them good. Again, Paul says this elsewhere. He reminds the Thessalonian church in 2 Thessalonians 3.13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Or Romans 12.17-21, we see something similar to what we have here. Romans 12.17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. First Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Or Galatians 6.10 So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are the household of faith. So do good to everyone. Do good and do not repay evil with evil. And pay attention that this is what Paul says, right? He says, see that. Pay attention to this. And especially think about this. What is the context of the Thessalonian church? They are a church that has undergone persecution. They have been persecuted by their own countrymen. They have been, uh, evil has been done to them. And he says, when they are reviled for their faith in Christ, do good. Now, is that the natural response? No. Because when we're reviled, when someone does evil to us, the natural response is not patience. It's impatience. And it's not doing good. It's responding in like measure. There's this strong urge to get vengeance. To get revenge for the wrong committed. And it's true for us that when we're wronged, forgiveness and love, doing good, right, is not the first inclination of our flesh. We want there to be a reckoning. We want to see vengeance by our own hands. But such is not the Christian way. And we must remember what Paul says, Romans twelve nineteen. I, I repeat this here. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So why can we bear with evil done to us? Because we know God, God will see justice done. How can we bear with the evil done to us? Well, we can remember Christ Jesus Hebrews 12.3 Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. There the author of Hebrews gives us a comfort. Right, He says, remember Christ Jesus. He endured hostility from sinners. How did God treat? How did God, the God-man, Christ Jesus, how did he treat those who crucified him on the cross? Forgive them, Father. How did he treat that one 
thief on the cross next to him, who we see in some gospel accounts is reviling him and mocking him, and has a bit of change of heart on the cross, he says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. So how, how can you bear with evil done to you? Remember Christ, look to Christ. How can we bear with evil done to us? Consider that even these things are the providence of God. They're not outside of his hand. Uh, I mentioned Jesus, Acts 4, 27 through 28. The, ch- the church prays as they're undergoing persecution. Listen to what they say. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. They say, they pray to God and say, they recognize, they confess everything that happened to Christ Jesus from Herod, from Pontius Pilate, from the Gentiles, from the people of Israel, were nothing outside of God's plan. They were all part of God's plan. Everything that had been predestined to take place took place. And so how do we not repay anyone evil for evil? We remember that even this situation is under the providential hand of God. Calvin, uh, John Calvin says it this way. The first step, therefore, in the exercise of patience is not to revenge injuries. The second is to bestow favors upon even our enemies. It may not be easy, beloved, but this is what you're called to do in Christ. So when your coworker sabotages you, you help them. When your classmate tries to start something, you bless them. When your friends gossip, you speak well. First Peter 4.19 Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So you don't repay evil for evil, but you do good. And as Paul says here in First Thessalonians, do good to one another within the church and to everyone outside of the church. So as Paul presses into the relational realities of the church fellowship, he urges that we who are within the church consider one another. He urges that we work to see the weak among us be made strong. He urges we come alongside one another. And as the author of Hebrews says, we stir one another up to love and to good works. And this does take patience. It takes long suffering to bear with one another. But that's what love does. Do you want to know part of what it means to love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Look to this passage. That's what it means. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and always seek to do good. Do you, Christian, think this way? Do you consider the good that you ought to be doing for your fellow believer? And again, this is a high and a difficult calling because we are by nature self-centered. And in our culture today, right, that is what our culture preaches and proclaims, especially here in America, right? You have to consider yourself. You have to, you have to consider only of yourself. You have to be focused on enlarging yourself and think little of helping uh, lift up your brother or sister in Christ up. But obedience to God demands this. Love demands this. 
Revenge is easy, impatience is easy, but will you, for the, for the sake of your fellow beloved child of God, set aside the easy and work through what is difficult? Some of you may be idle and you may think that work is for other people and that working for the good of the fellowship of the saints is for someone else like the pastor. It's certainly not you. But consider this passage this day. Consider that our great God, our Lord Jesus Christ, will judge such unruliness. He will bring to bear his rod of discipline upon you, child of God. Some of you may be fearful. You may think that he who is in the world is greater than he who is in you. But consider what 1 John 4, 4 says. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Or Romans 8.31, what shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Or Isaiah 40.29, he gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. And so you who are fearful, take courage. You who are discouraged, take courage. Believe in God. Look to God. Look to Christ, because he is faithful, and he will empower you and support you. Some of you may be weak. You don't believe that God is faithful. You don't believe that God is able to carry you through. But you don't have to go through this life alone. God has brought you into his family and you are surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who, at the very least, ought, uh, should want to help you. You have those who who you can lean upon when you don't know what to do when you don't know what is right, when you don't know what to think, you have the church. In church, we have to be ready to help and to support the weak. But what of you who have no faith? What of you who look, for instance, at what Paul says in verse 15, that you don't repay evil for evil, but do good? You look at that as not just mere uh, difficult, it's not just something that's difficult to do, but you look at it as utter foolishness. What of you who would rather go your own way than to submit to the fellowship of the saints? For you, a warning. God will be just. He will require of you every evil that you have committed in thought and word and deed. He will visit upon you the terrors of hell because that is what you deserve. And you may not think that way. You may think, that's not what I deserve. I'm, I'm good enough. But understand that to fail in one part, in one part of obedience to God's law is to fail the entire thing. Because God who spoke, spoke all the law. And he said, this is what holiness requires. This is what relationship and peace with me requires. For the evil you have rendered, he will render to you the good of his just and true judgments. For the evil you have rendered, he will render to you the good of his fierce wrath. But if you repent of your sins, if you turn to him, if you trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as your only Savior and Lord, he will forgive you. Christ Jesus shed his blood and broke his body to pay for the sins of his people. He died that we who believe might have life and peace and joy and know his divine love. He did this willingly, repaying with good the evil that had been committed against them. So turn to Jesus. 
Call out to him in prayer. Ask him to save you from your sins. Believe the good news that Christ bore the wrath of God for your sin. And then let us strive together to grow and be mature in Christ. Let us pray. O Father in heaven, you who are holy and righteous and good and whose every word is good, whose every judgment is just and true and good, Father, we confess that we fail. Father, we fail to consider one another as we ought far too often. Father, we fail to consider how we are to build one another up, to strive to to help one another, to repay uh, such evil done against us with good. Father, we confess that the naturalness, the natural tendency that we have is towards impatience, selfishness, and evil. Revenge and avenging ourselves when it is your right alone. Father, forgive us. And we know that in Christ we can have the forgiveness of our sins. For if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And Father, help us to consider one another, to consider one another more highly than ourselves. To look not only after our own interests, but also the interests of one another. Father, that we would do as you have commanded us to do in your word. That we would build one another up. Father, we pray for the the perseverance and the strength to do good to those who do evil to us. Father, that we might be an example, an emblem of Jesus Christ himself. Father, we pray your spirit. We pray your spirit would be at work in us, that we would bear the fruit of the spirit. Father, we pray your spirit would be at work in those who do not know you even now, that they may come to know you. And so confess, confess their need of Christ. Do that which only you can do, O Father. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.